Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome again to Hope Brooklyn Church Online. If you're joining us for the first time, a special welcome to you. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. Um, and uh, you're actually joining at a pretty cool time. We are, we're finishing today uh, a sermon series that we've been going through throughout May and June called Missio Day, God on Mission. We've been examining uh, what it means and what it looks like to be uh, emptied of the cultural powers of money and political sway and, and, and social acceptance, emptied of those things, instead being filled by the power of God's love and being uh, led by God and used by God to, to reach our societies, to reach our spheres of influence with the love uh, that is found in Jesus. We've been looking at different habits and impulses and rhythms um, that accompany us who are joining God on his mission. And uh, today is the, the last Sunday, the last message of this series. Um, next week, we're starting a new series, which we kind of don't have a, a, a title for, but it, the, the basic theme around it is going to be returning to our first love. Anna, who's my wife and myself, we're going to be heading out on sabbatical um, for the next six weeks. And um, and I'm really excited about the series we're heading into because it's going to be a, a collection of people within Hope Brooklyn, but also my friends from across the country who are going to be really talking about what does it mean to return to our first love. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but right now it just feels like there's so much happening. There's so much confusion and chaos that I just need to retreat. I need to go back to the fundamentals of who is God and what was it like when I first encountered him, when I first met him in his fullness. And that's what this series is going to be about. Um, some incredible people, pastors, are going to be sharing their stories, their testimonies of when they first met God and how that ch utterly changed their lives and, and what they would challenge us as a community um, through the testimony of their story. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be filling, definitely, these next, these next couple weeks. So um, make sure you tune in. It's going to be a good time this summer. Uh, and like I said, uh, Anna and I are going to be away for the next six weeks. We're going to be on sabbatical. Again, that theme of first love, we're going to return to our first love. Um, I'm going to shut off my brain. I'm going to shut off my pastor hat, hat, heart, whatever you want to call it. Like, um, I'm not going to think about you guys. That's not entirely true, but kind of true. Uh, I'm going to shut off my responsibilities, and I'm going to be a child of God again. First and foremost, to my first love, my first responsibility, which is to be filled with the presence of God. And so I would covet your prayers um, in this time for us. Because when I come back, I'm sure I'm going to be rearing with energy and ready to go. Um, but before that, this is, this is the end of the Missio Day series, and it's the final missional habit. And I'm excited because I think God has something for us today. And what I want to look at today is the missional habit of commissioning to commission someone. Uh, if you break it into its parts, commission, com, and mission. Com means with. Mission means like a task, an assignment. So to commission someone means to, uh, to empower someone to join you on your assignment, to, to join you on your task. Um, and there's a, a rich biblical precedent of commissioning. Often when, when someone commissions others, it happens at a, 
at a point uh, of departure, a period of departure, that person's about to leave, whether you know uh, for good or for a period of time. So I think the timing really works out. Um, Anna and I are heading out. We're going to disappear for six weeks. And so here is the final commissioning of you guys as Hope Brooklyn for this next bit of time until we return. And so before we jump into our passage today, I, I would ask that you join me in prayer so we can prepare our hearts for what God wants to say to us today. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would still our hearts, quiet our minds, and make our, um, make our entire souls available to what you want to say to us. We pray, come Holy Spirit. We ask for you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrected Jesus, to have his way in our community today. And whether that's um, people who know you, God, or people who don't know you, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would have full sway and permission to do whatever you want to do among us. Speak through my words, anoint them, and let them reach good soil in people's hearts. Jesus, it's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's read our passage. It comes from Luke chapter 22, and it's actually a period in Luke's story where Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's at uh, the very end of his life, so it's his final words to his disciples, his followers, his final commissioning of them before he departs for a period of time. And this is what he says to, it's a short passage, this is what he says to, to Simon Peter. That's what he says. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And you, when you return, strengthen your brothers. And he, Peter, Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. Jesus is commissioning Peter. He says, look, I know things you don't know. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Simon, but I've already prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. There's a commissioning in these words. And we want to sort of look at it. What does it mean? What is a God-shaped commission? And what is God saying to you today? Well, I think the first element of a God-shaped commission is there's urgency. There's urgency. Jesus starts by saying, Simon, Simon, listen. Simon, Simon, listen. Uh, in, in the Hebrew um, uh, language and in the Jewish tradition, to, to say things twice is like a double emphasis. It's like italics when we write it down. You know, when something's in italics, there's an emphasis. It's like, pay attention. This is intense. Uh, I have a dog named Moses, and when, when he's not listening and when I want to get him to pay attention, I sort of grab his snout, and I say it, and he tries to, like, wiggle away. He's like, no, 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 look at me. Look at me. Um, so metaphorically, this is me grabbing your snout <laughs> and uh, saying, you know, Simon, Simon, listen. Jesus is going, I'm about to head to death. I'm about to go to the cross. Time is short. I don't have much more time to tell you these things. And I think it's important that we recognize that in a God-shaped commission, there is urgency. We are so tempted to be distracted 
by long days, but what do we always realize? The days are long, the years are very short. I mean, literally, I was just on a walk the other day in Prospect Park with my dog Moses, and I just had this surreal moment of like, we're already in June, like end of June? I remember being early March when the pandemic was just starting, and we're already end of June. Guys, time goes so fast, and if we're not careful, we will squander away the chances that God has ordained to meet with us, to meet with you. Constantly we see throughout scripture, this emphasis on today. So you see God say, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today if you hear it, you don't know how much time you have left. The world wants to distract us and and say, oh, the, the time's not pressing. And we're not being doomsday preachers and saying the end is near or whatever. But we're kind of saying, pay attention. We don't know what we're promised and we don't know what time is left. Simon, Simon, listen, listen. I've been reflecting on a a passage from 2 Timothy, actually, um, which describes the end times. And I, I just can't get over it because tell me as we read this passage, that this doesn't sound exactly like our own current moment. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, tell me it doesn't sound like what we're experiencing. So we read in 2 Timothy, uh, the writer says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And again, this isn't some sense of like a doomsday preacher, you know, condemning people. There is no condemnation in God. There's no condemnation. But the love of God is powerful and exacting and desires all of us to come to a saving knowledge of his grace, a saving knowledge of his presence. And there's an urgency of that. Like as Jesus was about to head to the cross, the reason why there was such an urgency is because something was shaking in the spiritual world, right? He was about, God was about to enter into the realm of sin and death. God was about to be separated from God. Something was happening spiritually. And I think, I truly believe that something is happening spiritually right now. Something is happening in our season right now. But I do believe that God is saying, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Listen, don't get sucked in. Don't keep your eyes on the world. Keep your eyes on me. And I'm reminded of of something Ralph Winter said. He goes, obedience to the Great Commission, which is simply joining God in his mission to reach the world with the love of Jesus, has more consistently been poisoned by affluence than by anything else. That is to say, in this moment of social upheaval, 
In this moment, there's an opportunity for God to reach you and to reach me like never before. But there's also an opportunity for our faith to fail, as Jesus said. I've prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. So hear my urgency, friends. What is in a God-shaped commission? An urgency to come to a sober mind and realize the times we're in. Realize that scripture, even though it's such a difficult book, the Bible, realize that it's infused with the presence of God and that it leads us to right relationship with him and to understanding our worlds and our environments. And how could something written 2,000 years ago still feel just as true today? Simon, Simon, listen. Listen, there's something happening right now, guys. And God wants to make sure that we are listening. Otherwise, we're going to be swept away. The next thing in a a God-shaped commissioning, there's an urgency. But notice the next thing Jesus does is he names Satan's plans. He names the evil one's devices. Like we we saw that in 2 Timothy where there's a description of the, the zeitgeist. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, slanderers, no self-control, cruel, reckless, unforgiving, loving pleasure more than God. Like there's, there's a naming of, of Satan's devices, Satan's plans. And as I consider our current moment that we're in, guys, and I think God is, is in this. There is a social upheaval. There's an upheaval in the church in the heart of the church in America that God is in, that is leading us back to him. But I do think that if there is a, an opportunity for Satan to sift us like wheat, it's in this. Because when I look at our current moment, I see confusion, I see chaos, and I see narcissism in all of us, all of us. I see confusion, chaos, and narcissism. Everyone is so angry at everyone else. No one trusts anyone enough to have a conversation, which is pride. There's, I mean, (laughs) go type in recent articles of conspiracy theories. In the last like 10 years, we've seen such a rise in conspiracy theories. Why? Why why is there this like newfound um, disbelief of everyone else in this, rather this, this deep distrust of people. Because we don't trust the media sources to tell us the truth. We don't trust anyone who disagrees with us. We, we naturally assume that in their heart of hearts that they are out to destroy us. But there is one person that everyone trusts, his or herself, or those who think just like us. There is is a fracturing happening, and we see it, guys. And and to a certain degree, obviously, I pray for the society that we're in, but I'm talking about the church. What about the church? Those who are called by God to bear his presence, to be a light in a dark world. What about us? And as I look at our current moment, there's one sort of epitomization of, of this moment that I think we need to be very wary of. And that's cancel culture. Cancel culture. You've probably heard of it. You've probably seen this phrase now popping up. 
cancel culture is essentially the, the belief that there is a, um, an ideological purity or um, vice versa, there's someone else that has an ideology that is so traumatic that the person, the, the group has to be totally canceled. And again, like I, I realize that, that perhaps that gets a little dicey because there are some ideologies that are super dangerous that cause harm to lots of people. And those ideologies do need to be opposed. They need to be rejected. They need to be stood up against. But the person from the church's standpoint can never be canceled. And we need to stand for that. No person can be canceled. In fact, what I see happening is something that, that Dr. King said a while back, where he goes, how hard it is to not have someone to look down upon. How hard it is. Otherwise, you'd have to look inside and what you don't like about yourself. And again, he was talking about the, the logic of white supremacy in his day. But now that could be just as equally applied to the logic of cancel culture. There's such outrage on those who differ in some aspects that we totally just transfer our, our own anger, our own guilt, our own self-loathing onto them because we want someone to look down upon without realizing that change starts with us. I mean, even uh, former President Obama, he's weighed in on it. And he said, you know, this idea of purity and that you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who you are fighting may love their kids and share certain things with you. I just want to be very clear. From, from the church's standpoint, cancel culture in the sense of canceling entire groups of people is a device of Satan. It's a device of the evil one. Because in God's eyes, no one is able to be canceled. Or we should say, if anyone could be canceled, then everyone could possibly be canceled. Where do we draw that line? Or if we flip it, if anyone, if anyone could be saved, then everyone can be saved. And that's the point. When Jesus goes to the cross, that is God saying, I will cancel the powers that hold you captive. I will cancel sin and death. The demonic powers that hold us back from right relationship with God and from creating just societies, those will be canceled. But the people, the person will be restored. We cancel the unjust force, but we set the person free. And this is a fine line that if the church tips too far, we will have lost the power of the gospel. Because keep in mind, after Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he throws in this qualification. He goes, if you do not forgive other people their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive yours. If you do not forgive others, and he doesn't put a, a standard on how much is to be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. If, if, 
there is, there's such outrage right now, guys, and I know we feel it. There's such outrage, and our information is spreading so quickly, and there's always new information. The pace that it's shared is so rapid that it doesn't allow for, for meaningful conversations, and because so much of our life is mediated digitally, we don't have meaningful relationships with those who are real people who can't be reduced to a digital ideology. So we don't have constructive conversations. There's no thinking, there's no questions, and most of all, there's very little prayer. There's very little prayer. You wanna know the device of Satan right now? What he wants the church to do? He wants the church to continue to accuse and then ask questions later. He wants the church to become such a crusader that we forget that it starts with recognizing our complicity. It starts with recognizing just how much God has forgiven us of. It starts with recognizing that before we can do anything else, we must be on our knees in prayer. Satan doesn't want you to have time to pray. And it's, I mean, like, it, this isn't new, it's very old. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in his work, The Screw Tape Letters, which uh, fictionalizes uh, demons describing how they can keep us humans away from the presence of God. And one of the demons, he, he says, he writes, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. The simplest way to sift people like wheat is to turn their gaze away from him, away from God, toward themselves. Friends, there are so many things commanding our attention and commanding our energies right now, and I get it. I get it. There's so many things, and it's con there's such a rapid pace of information. We're afraid of being left behind. We're afraid of, of not realizing things. There's such a social upheaval, a spiritual upheaval. But I'm telling you, if your gaze is not on the presence of God, you will be sifted like wheat. If your gaze is not on the glory of God, the beauty of God, you will be sifted like wheat. The evil one doesn't want you to look into the glory of God because you know what you'll see when you look in the glory of God? You'll suddenly become very aware of how inglorious you are. You'll become very aware of how impure you are, even though it feels like we're fighting for some ideological purity. You'll become very aware that if there is any change that's gonna happen in society or in the church, it has to start with me. I have so much I have to repent of. I have so much I have to be on my knees about. It starts with me. And that's actually, ironically, that is the only thing that will allow for lasting change is when it comes through the light of Jesus. When we're in prayer in the glory of God, we are so aware that we don't have it figured out that we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. That if we're not willing to forgive others, then that means there's a line where we're playing the judge and not God. And God isn't willing to forgive us then at that same line. 
And here's the reality, guys. When you get in the presence of God and you realize just how broken and, and wretched your heart is, how complicit your heart is, and all sorts of things. You know, the other thing you realize in equal measure? How deeply God loves you. How madly he adores you. He wants nothing more than to just be with you. To lavish his adoration, his joy on you. Which is this unbelievable paradox and this beautiful picture of grace. It's the power of the gospel. That when we become most aware of how wretched we are, that's when we encounter the delight of the Father like nothing else. And if the church can capture that, if we can be a people of deep repentance and say, hey, we're going to oppose injustice, we're not going to participate in it, but we are certainly not going to cancel another human being. If we can be that type of, of humble people, humble community, of grace, of forgiveness, of power, y'all, God's going to do something through us that will shake nations. But if not, if our eyes are not on him, which means if we're not becoming more aware of our wretchedness and his grace, we're going to be sifted like wheat. So there's an urgency. And then Jesus names Satan's plans, Satan's intentions, the evil one's desire. And then finally what he does is he issues a prophetic command. He says, Peter, when you return, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, Peter, strengthen your brothers and your sisters. There's a recognition of what Peter is about to do. There's a recognition that Peter's heart is far more wretched than Peter knows. But a knowledge, even though Jesus recognizes the full extent of Peter's heart, there's a knowledge that his prayer for Peter is stronger than Peter's actions. And this can only happen, friends. This can only happen where you understand someone's heart to such a degree, but you recognize that your prayers to the Father are so powerful that the prayers of a righteous person works are so strong. This can only happen when you are deeply in the presence of God. When you prioritize that more than anything else, there's a heaviness to your very being that is attuned to a different compass that sees differently. You're not perfect. We're not Jesus. We don't see perfectly. We're not going to do everything correctly. We're going to, we're, we're going to be exposed. We're going to, our blind spots are going to be exposed, but we have a heart that will repent. We have a heart that is attuned to how God is working things out, to the mission of God. And it's, it's so fascinating because Peter doesn't see this in himself. When, when Jesus says, I've prayed for you, and when you return, strengthen your brothers, and then Peter goes, what are you talking about? I'm willing to go to death with you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, not only are you not willing to go to death with me, tonight before the rooster crows, twice you're going to deny me three times. Peter doesn't even see what's in himself. Why? How? Because the eyes of his heart are not on God. They're on something else. They're on political victory. 
They're on social climbing. They're on this historic moment. I mean, just before this passage, literally like a couple verses before, we're told that the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Their eyes were on something else other than God, other than their deep love for Jesus. But Jesus' eyes aren't on those things. Jesus' eyes are so on God, in the presence of God. He sees what's in people's hearts even when they don't see what's in people's hearts. He sees the, the, the arc of their lives even when they don't, which is all the prophetic is. I mean, I know that word prophecy, that has a lot of, we come to that word from different places. Does it mean fortune telling? What does it mean? The prophetic at its core, guys, are people who are so attuned to God. They're, the eyes of their heart are so on God. They can see his hand in your life. They can see where his hand is not in your life and the reasons why. They can see where God is moving and what are going to be the, the dangerous places and we're going to be the beautiful places. They can see it. They see how God is behind history and is moving history into a right relationship with him through his son. They can see all that. They can also see Satan's work. They can see Satan's plans and intentions and devices. I remember one of the most powerful experiences I ever had. Uh, I was 22 years old. I was an eighth grade math teacher. And I was in this place of like total confusion. I felt like I was supposed to leave teaching um, and go to seminary and become a pastor. But I didn't know. Um, I, was, uh, I was teaching in Atlanta, Georgia. But I came back up to North Carolina where I'm from. And um, I went to my home church um, for a weekend. And while I was there, there was a, a woman in our church. She was known as the matriarch. Just a powerful woman who was deeply in the presence of God. Her and her husband had spent their entire lives um, starting communities, starting churches in Mozambique. And um, she was just, there was just a presence of God on her. And of course, I was so confused. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where I was going. I was in this crossroads in my life. And, and basically, God put me on her heart. She saw me worshiping. She came up to me and uh, she goes, are you Russell? And God, I mean, I had never met her. I didn't know how she knew my name. And I said, I am. And then she's like, I feel like I need to pray with you. I don't know why. And so I poured out my heart of where I was trying to make decisions, what was going on. And I'll never forget, she, she basically said, Russell, there's such a grace on your life. But if these hands are going to heal, they have to be clean. And I, at the time, I had no idea what she was talking about. It was revealed later on. But just like Jesus, she saw through me. She saw my heart. Just like Jesus, she was like, Russell, I know Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. I see God's intentions for you. I see God's plans. But if they're going to take root, they're going to take root. You're going to go through some pain first. Your heart's going to be revealed. And if, if, if you're going to follow God, Russ, how you spend your time will matter. And see, the reality is at that time, I couldn't hear from God. You know why I couldn't hear from God? Because I was filling my heart with all sorts of other things. My prayers were feeble because I didn't really believe that God was listening or that God cared about my life or that God actually had a plan for it. That God wanted to speak and interject himself and direct. 
Jesus' prayers are powerful. There's a prophetic command in them because he knows God. His eyes are on God, not on the world. Even though he recognizes the social upheaval, he recognizes the spiritual upheaval, he recognizes the climate, he isn't afraid because he knows the power of the Father. And friends, if, if I could leave us with anything, hear my words, hear this commissioning where God is saying, look, there is something happening. Church, church, listen. Hope Brooklyn, listen. There is something happening, but Satan is desiring to sift you like wheat. And if you don't keep your eyes on God, he will. But I've prayed for you. I have plans for you. And if you keep your eyes on me, if you keep your eyes desiring me, if you become more aware of what's really in your heart, I'm going to do something incredible through you. And then you'll be able to strengthen your brothers when you return. Friends, as, as we head out in sabbatical, and I know some of this stuff might be like all over the place because it's a lot of stuff just on my heart right now. As we head out in sabbatical, um, I'm just like, I'm very aware right now that, there is, that God is up to something, that there is a spiritual upheaval. Just like Jesus was heading to the cross, there is something happening right now. There is. And that's a good thing. God is at work, and it's a good thing. But if you are not careful, recognize that Satan can become a parasite on God's good work. That's literally what Satan does. He becomes a parasite. That's what sin is. It's the twisting of good things to make them, to, to put them in the position of God, and therefore he corrupts them and he ruins them. And this is a good work that God is doing right now in the church. But if you're not careful, it could become parasitic. We could be sifted like wheat. And the ways that this would happen, that Satan wants to destroy the church, make us fight against ourselves, create no room or no space to listen, to talk, to pray, to pray, make you feel like because you might be in a position of ideological superiority or you might be in a position that, that God is in that same position, that he's heading in this direction, that therefore Satan would make you feel like you're morally superior or that you're not part of the problem. That's something that he would do. Or he would allow other movements, other, other views to co-opt the church instead of us shining out and saying, look, there is no other way that society can be saved but through the name of Jesus. And we'll work together, but we will not back away from that claim. There's no other way that the full extent of our hearts, of every heart, can be laid bare and known and loved and forgiven unless it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our claim. That is our claim. And from that, we do all of our work. And we cancel no one. No one. We oppose on injustice, but we cancel no one. But Satan will, he'll distract us. He will. Or he'll, he'll, uh, he'll have us give in to despair. Or he'll have us look at other Christians or other leaders and throw our hands up. 
with self-righteousness and like, ah, oh, they just, they, you know, they don't get it, assuming that we get it. Or he'll have us look at our own weakness, our own complicity, and just shrivel in shame. None of those are God. And here's the thing. Here's the prophetic command, guys. Here's what you need to know. And I said it at the start back in April. We've been talking about it at the start of the year. God is bringing revival to his church. God is bringing an awakening of the spirit to his church. And Hope Brooklyn's going to be a part of that. God wants you to be drenched by his spirit. Drenched. But it comes from an unwillingness to settle for anything less than the presence of God in your life. Anything less. You can't settle. It comes from a position where the eyes of your heart, the deepest love and desire of your heart is for worship and prayer with God more than anything else. And then it's to get to work establishing a community, the church establishing a community, working in society to restore people into their rightful image as the beloved of God, casting out the powers of sin and death that hold people afraid and captive and telling them that there is nothing in their life or in their story that cancels them from the love of God. Nothing. Jesus was already canceled. He already took it all so that we could all find love and life. And that is coming to his church. That is coming to us. So my final commission to you, I don't know where you are in this. I don't know if you're on... Um, one side of the betrayal, of Peter's betrayal, where you're like, Lord, I'll go to death with you, but you, you really don't see what's in your heart. Or if you're on the other side, where you've, you already realize how prone our hearts are to wander, how weak they are, how cowardly they are. I don't know where you are, but here's my prayer. Here's my prophetic commissioning to you this summer. Do you know what I want you to spend your time doing this summer? I want you to come to an awareness. This is gonna sound so weird. I want you to come to an awareness at how weak your heart is. <laughs> I want you to come to an awareness at how cowardly your heart is. And just so you know, I'm gonna be doing the same with mine. I want you to come to an awareness that we are feeble and that we lack grace and forgiveness for others. And that just like we said in 2 Timothy, we are lovers of ourselves and we love our money, and we're boastful and proud, and we're scoffers. Like, that's who we are, unloving, unforgiving. That, that's, that's in the core of us. But I also want you to come to an awareness that in those places, when you bring that to God, that His grace says, none of those things, none of that separates you from my love. Because look at the cross. I've already entered into all of those places. I've paid that price. Know my grace and my forgiveness and then go and offer that same forgiveness to the world. Go and bring shalom. Work for the restoration of all people. But ensure, make sure that you are bringing the deep, deep grace that says none of us are worthy of anything. None of us are worthy of anything. And yet we get everything because God is so good to us. 
That's my prayer, guys. This summer, dedicate yourself to the prayer closet. Dedicate yourself to the unseen work. Get off of social media. Dedicate yourself to the unseen work of bringing your heart before God and demand, beg Him to lead you. He will. At first, some stuff's going to be exposed, but then you will encounter such a washing of grace. It will take your breath away. And as we move further into the year, let us be a community with open hands, open hearts, courage, courage for the kingdom, but a, a passion that says we're not going to cancel any human. All are welcome into this family where we will set it all right because God will set it all right through Christ and through our feeble hands. Pray for Anna and me as we go away because I'm going to get, go get in my prayer closet. I'm going to go become more aware of my sin, my wretchedness, and God's deep grace for me, his son, which is independent of anything I can do or leave undone. It's because Jesus came for me. And I'm praying the same for you this summer. So join me. God, I just, I just lift up the church and I know that Satan's desires are to sift the church, to keep my friend's eyes on so many other things, so many other things, God. But all of those things are not complete truths and all of those things will lead people away from the power of your presence. And so, Lord, my prayer for every person listening in, simple. I don't know if they know you, if they have a knowledge of your love for them or not. But right now, I pray that those who don't would, would make their hearts available and that they would say, and that's you, just say in your heart, God, I want to know how much you love me. Show me, show me who you are. Because I don't want to continue looking down on other people and transferring my guilt and self-loathing onto others. I want to be restored. And that only comes through you. And for the rest of us, God, I just pray right now that people would be devoted to their prayer closets, that they would encounter their first love, that there is nothing that makes them worthy of life but your word, your love to them, and that they would drink that in and know that no one and nothing can take it away, and that they would take that love, that commissioning to a world that is starving for it. Lord, we want your awakening. We want your revival. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. It's in your name. Amen. See you guys soon.